turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Now these martyrs are not crying for vengeance for their own sakes, but for God's sake. They're reminding God, these are your people and your reputation is at stake. The Ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, this is Abounding Grace. Welcome to the program. We're back in the book of Revelation today as we take a look at chapter 6 and the opening of the seven seals. Now, we've already taken a look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you will, that first four seals. And as we begin our time together today, we take a look at the blessing side of these seals. We've seen the judgments, but now we want to take a look at the martyrs that are underneath Let's spend some time together today, shall we, in Revelation chapter 6. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner, today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Revelation 6, as we have seen, is the unsealing of this book that was in the hand of the one sitting on the throne. Revelation 4 is about the throne, and Revelation 5 is about the book, a book which no one And all the universe was able or worthy or qualified to open except the one who was the root of David, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that when you compare passages in Exodus and Ezekiel with Revelation 5, you see where John got his imagery showing That this book is a book of God's curses on apostate people, Israel. We saw that in Ezekiel 2. And Jesus begins to unseal this book, which is actually a scroll with seven seals. Now, the resurrected, risen, reigning, and conquering Christ from God's right hand, by providence and by His Spirit, is opening this book and starting to administer the contents. And the contents are covenant curses predominantly, as well as blessings, as we're going to see today. Making sure that those who deserve covenant curses, that is, apostate Israel, and remember now there are two great enemies of the church in the first century, and that, are, and that is apostate Israel and anti-Christian Rome. Make sure, making sure these enemies of God receive the judgment of God and making sure the faithful people of God receive the blessings that God has promised them. So now the seals are starting to open. Christ opens the first seal and out comes a white horse. The one on it is a mighty conqueror who brings victory and only victory who is 
the Lord Jesus himself. He's followed by three other horses. The second horse is the horse symbolizing war. The third is the horse symbolizing economic upheaval. And the fourth horse is the horse symbolizing death and destruction that follows war and economic upheaval. We saw that all last week. And the point being, the one on the first horse, the white horse, uses the various energies of creation and the sinful schemes of men to accomplish his purposes and destroy the enemies of his people and to deliver his people. He uses war, he uses economic upheaval, and he uses death. Well, now we come to the fifth seal, which is about how God is going to bless his people. This is an interesting picture. It says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they maintained. So in this vision, there is an altar. And remember, in the Old Testament, the altar was right outside the tabernacle. And that is where the animals were slaughtered in sacrifice. And of course, that was symbolic of the last altar we will ever have, which was Calvary, on which the Lamb of God was crucified. The lives of all those who suffered martyrdom were hidden under this altar, martyred because they loved the word of God and they maintained their Christian testimony. Now that symbolism is explained literally in the New Testament. Time and again throughout the Old and New Testament, we read things like the blood of Abel crying out from the ground, or the lives of those who died crying out from the ground, etc. It is a figurative way of referring to those who were martyred because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here they are under the altar, which is tremendous imagery, particularly in light of Philippians 3.10, which says, Paul considered everything but dung that he may know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. So Paul, in various places in the New Testament, talks about the fact that he is never closer to Christ. He is never more like Christ. He is never more effective in the service of Christ than when he is suffering for Christ, and when he is being persecuted. For righteousness sake. That could be the purpose of the lives of the martyrs being under this altar. And this seal tells us that whereas God's people will suffer much at the hands of the world. God will avenge their blood on their persecutors. Notice what it says next in verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our, our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, the phrase judge on the earth in the book of Revelation has reference to those who are unregenerate. 
or to the human race in its rebellion against God. And the martyred saints are saying, Lord, how long are you going to put off cleaning up your name and reputation? The world is laughing at you. They're saying that you don't know how to protect your people. Oh, how long are you going to put off avenging the blood of the martyrs of the church? Now, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 23, 33 through 36, notice what Jesus said there. He is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you, and he's talking here to the leaders of Jerusalem, may fall the guilt of all of the righteous bloodshed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bereshia, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And remember from last week, the word generation doesn't mean race. It means literally generation and If you have a translation that says race, please change it now. So Jesus is announcing that God is going to avenge the blood of those who have been martyred for his sake. And that their martyrdom will bring them into close fellowship with him as it were their lives are now in the altar. Now, these martyrs are not crying for vengeance for their own sakes, but for God's sake. They're reminding God, these are your people and your reputation is at stake. Time and again throughout the book of Psalms, there are prayers for God to vindicate himself, like in Psalm 79. It says, Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants, which has been shed. They're saying, Lord, do this for the glory of your name. The nations are asking, where is your God? Show them where our God is. Show them that our God does reign. Pour out your vengeance upon your enemies. These saints are provisionally clothed in white. That is, even in their martyrdom, they are given festive garments. Garments of victory and triumph. And it says... There was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told. Now, I think you'll see, this is really showing the sovereignty of God. That they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. 
In other words, Christ, who is administering and opening these seals, says there is a specific number of my people that are going to be martyred. And the time is not over. So rest a little while. Because there are still more people to suffer for my sake and to be martyred. I have a set number, he says. I have determined how many of my people will suffer martyrdom. Not one more, not one less, shall suffer for my sake. Now that brings us to the great sixth seal. I've actually been a bit anxious to get to this passage because it explains other passages in the Bible. And it helps us to understand how to read the Bible. And if we can just interpret this text the way the Bible does, it will eventually lead to the end of the doctrine of the rapture and the pre-tribulational, premillennial explanations of the book of Revelation. This obviously is a key text. How one interprets this text will determine what they believe about the rest of the book of Revelation, the second coming. And other such things. The problem is that most people impose their already preconceived view upon this text. Rather than allowing scripture to interpret it. So use your imagination now. Verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. And every tree and every island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the weak and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, because people think you're supposed to take the book of Revelation literally, they say, well, obviously, that is about the second coming at the end of the world. They believe there is nothing to happen prior, earlier to the end of the world that is to be that earth-shaking. Nothing as catastrophic as what is described here. So it has to be right at the end of the world, at Christ's second coming. There is a great earthquake. The stars fall from the sky. The moon turns to blood. The sky splits apart. Escape from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So they say, surely this has got to be the second coming. Well, you see what they say it is. It seems to me that this can speak of nothing but the second coming, right? But the point is, what does the Bible say? 
How does the Bible interpret these images? Let me remind you of some things. Turn back to Revelation 1. There are certain things you have to keep going back to and to consider seriously, my friends, as we go through the book of Revelation. Verse 1 of chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, don't forget that when you read Revelation 6. He's talking about things not in the distant future, but things that are to shortly take place in their lives. And please, you can't forget this. Secondly, remember verse 7 and what the focus of the book of Revelation is. Chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he keeps on coming with the cloud. Continuous present tense. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, or those who crucified him, the Jews. And all of the tribes of the land will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. So when someone says, the book of Revelation is about the second coming of Christ, tell them very bluntly, but lovingly, no, it is not. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is even barely a light motif of this book. The focus of the book of Revelation is not the second coming of Christ at the end of the world when he returns to earth in clouds of glory. Now, why do I believe verse 7 doesn't refer to the second coming? If you have a New American Standard Bible, you notice that all of the first line is in capital letters, which means he is quoting or at least alluding to the Old Testament. So if you will, please turn to Isaiah 19. Because I want you to see that I'm not reading anything into this. I'm just taking it as it says. Notice the kind of language God uses in Isaiah when he talks about the destruction of Egypt. Isaiah 19.1. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the hearts of the Egyptians will melt within them. Now, that is all figurative language. Think about it. Did the hearts of the Egyptians actually melt? Of course not. The point is, we know what it means when it says their hearts melted with fear. That's an idiomatic phrase. But instead of literally saying God is coming to Egypt to judge Egypt, it says in this beautiful, spectacular language that the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Now, I'm sure you understand that's not talking about the second coming. 
No, it's talking about God's invasion of Egypt before even the birth of Jesus Christ. That God is riding on a swift cloud. And what is the idea of a cloud in Scripture? Most of the time it refers to the great glory cloud. You know that pillar of fire and cloud that led the children of Israel through the wilderness? That was a visualization of the display of all of God's perfections. So when God says he is going to ride a swift cloud to Egypt and the hearts of the Egyptians are going to melt, he is saying that when he comes to Egypt to judge her, that judgment is going to be spectacular and it is going to result in the defeat of the Egyptians and the magnificent display of the radiance of God's glory. Now go back to Revelation 1-7 and you'll see he is referring to that using the exact same language. So what is the book of Revelation about? It is about the continuous coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into history by his providence. That is a spectacular judgment leading to the display of his greatness in the destruction of his enemies. So now bear that in mind as we try to interpret this passage of scripture. So the seal was broken. There was a great earthquake. The sun became black. The moon became like blood. The stars fell. The sky split apart. The kings tried to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Now this is not the first time in the Bible that this imagery is used. This imagery of the sun going out, the moon turning to blood, the stars falling, the sky splitting apart is used several times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And never ever is it taken literally. Never. The sun never went out. The moon never turned to blood. The stars never fail. The skies never rolled up, nor will they ever. And I'm going to show you that this is an idiom that had as its purpose, not a literal description of what happened, but simply to say that when God judges his enemies, most particularly his apostate or people or the oppressors of his people, it is a spectacular display of his glory. I mean, if the sun went out, the moon turned to blood, the stars fell, that would be pretty spectacular, to say the least, would it not? Now let's see how those words and the words like them are used. You say, what about the phrase, there the Lord of God? There it says in verses 16 and 17, the great day of the wrath of the Lamb. And surely that has reference to the end of the world, the day of the Lord. Well, we shall see that the day of the Lord refers to any day that God intervenes in the life of his enemies to destroy them. The day of the Lord does not just refer to the end of the world. There are passages in which that phrase is used and is not talking about 
the end of the world. It is talking about the day that God intervened into Egypt or Moab or whatever nation to destroy and judge, to judge and destroy. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, post mailbox, 402, and the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are two in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found, again, at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. Thank you.